This is the Bible Book Club, where each episode we dive deep into the only book written 2,000 years ago that can still change your life today. Welcome to the club! Well, in chapters 4 and 5, we discuss the purpose of all these crazy rituals laid out in Leviticus, and we talk... Which people, just so you understand, Heather, off the mic, confessed uh, to me, the, she still doesn't get it. it it's just, I don't understand <laughs> what Why? was going on. Wait, what did I say? God said felt I the need to lay this all out. Well, you said that all the all the civilizations then did this Correct. ritual. That's what we talked about. Yeah. So this was a common cultural happening back then that people offered sacrifices. The difference, and we're really going to get into some of the difference, was that the Israelites did it differently. And that intrigued a lot of people. And we're going to talk about that at the end of this episode. So you got to stay on, people, because it's going to get good. <laughs> it's always good. <laughs> but so what you're saying is it's, it's not totally foreign, like it sounds to us, a really right. weird thing for him to be asking right. them to make these sacrifices. It was a fairly normal practice for them. Very normal practice for the world back then. Yeah, they wouldn't have thought it was weird. But anyway, last episode, we learned that they provided that these sacrifices provided a temporary solution to the separation of God and man. And it was an atoning for the purification of sin. Of course, the permanent solution would come years later as the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for us as we know it today. Then we read the last two of the five types of offerings. Both are variations of the burn offering, which are for atonement. It is the purification offering and the reparation offering. The purification was kind of complicated because it introduces the concept of sin being unclean and causing this polluted state that we live in because of sin. And the reparation is to make up for the wrong of either the misuse of some kind of tabernacle property or of your neighbor's property. Exactly. All unintentional. Exactly. This unintentional sins. All right, chapter six and seven. In this episode, we are going to fly through the rest of chapter six and seven because they are a repeat of the chapters we just covered with one little nuance. These laws are instructions to the priests rather than to the people. So the five we just covered were instructions for the people. We're going to cover the same five again for the priests. Well, it sure seemed like there was a lot of instruction to the priests. Yes. Well, no, there's going to be, there's, I know, right? (laughs) And then the priest will have to do this, but don't wring its neck. But it was really talking. So just to be super clear, we are in the first section of Leviticus, the section that outlines the laws for ritual sacrifice. Okay. Chapters one through five were the instructions for the people about how and what to offer. Chapter six through seven are instructions for the priests on how to make those offerings. Same five offerings, burnt, grain, purification, reparation, and fellowship. To keep them all straight, there is a chart of all five in the show notes. But try not to think of them too individual because the full sense of atonement was not achieved in any one type of offering, but rather the offerings worked together. It required the removal of impurities through the purification offering, as well as the dedication of the burnt offering and the restoration to fellowship realized in the fellowship and grain offering. So they all kind of worked together. It was something that they... So sometimes you could have like accidentally made all of these and had to sacrifice all these things together? Well, certain things were done regularly in the mornings and the evenings and then other times. I think there was a little bit more of a cadence to them than we read here. 
Now, let's dive into Ritual Law School for Priests, and then I want to talk about something that was very fun for me. So these are the laws and offerings for the priests. Chapter 6 continued. The order is slightly different. The fellowship offering is last for the priests, starting with the burnt offering, which remember the goal of the burnt offering is to provide reconciliation between the sinner and God. So it, it deters God's wrath. It atones for sin. The offer is showing that they are sorry and receiving forgiveness. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, give Aaron and his sons this command. These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night till morning, and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. The priest shall then put on his linen clothes with linen undergarments next to his body and shall remove the ashes of the burnt offering that the fire has consumed on the altar and place them beside the altar. Then he is to take off these clothes and put on others and carry the ashes outside the camp to a place that is ceremonially clean. The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. Every morning, the priest is to add firewood and arrange the burnt offering on the fire and burn the fat of the fellowship offerings on it. The fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must not go out. Okay, pity the priest in charge of keeping the fire burning because the Lord commands three times. It must not go out. Why is this so important? Remember, these are just the instructions. In chapter 9, we are actually going to have the tabernacle grand opening. And guess what? The Lord himself is going to light that fire and it must not go out. Yeah, that was ever. really important. It couldn't go yes, out. Yes, because the Lord literally is going to be the one to light it and it must be kept burning. So forever. all I can picture is these really stressed out priests running around naked because he's asking them to change their clothes in the middle of the altar. <laughs> and they're like really stressed out because they can't let this fire go out. There was a lot of pressure being weird. a priest. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure. Not yet. It's not lit yet. This this is just the instructions. Okay. The grain offering. The goal of the grain offering is a memorial offering. It should invoke memories of God's faithfulness to them. The offerer is saying thank you. Similarly, at the Last Supper, Jesus gave the bread to his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 14. These are the regulations for the grain offering. Aaron's sons are to bring it before the Lord in front of the altar. The priest is to take a handful of the finest flour and some olive oil together with all the incense on the grain offering and burn the memorial portion on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Aaron and his sons shall eat the rest of it, but it is to be eaten without yeast in the sanctuary area. They are to eat it in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. It must not be baked with yeast. I have given it as their share of the food offerings presented to me, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. It is most holy. Any male descendant of Aaron may eat it. For all generations to come, it is his perpetual share of the food offerings presented to the Lord. Whatever touches them will become holy. The Lord also said to Moses, This is the offering Aaron and his sons are to bring to the Lord on the day he is anointed, a tenth of an ephath of the finest flour as a regular grain offering, half of it in the morning and half of it in the evening. It must be prepared with oil on a griddle, 
bring it well mixed and present the grain offering broken in pieces as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. The son who is to succeed him as anointed priest shall prepare it. It is the Lord's perpetual share and it is to be burned completely. Every grain offering of a priest shall be burned completely. It must not be eaten. Okay, I just thought of one benefit of being married to a priest. He did all the cooking. Unless she had to cook it for him because he said he had to have it prepared by the time he got there. No, no, no. He has to do all the cooking because he and his, this does provide for he and his family. So, you know, they do get to eat some. But it would be torturous to be making these awesome little, it's basically like like waffles and then you can't eat them. Well, some of them they can eat though. Like the, the morning, I did read this, the morning and the evening, you know, when they offer morning and evening back then, they just did have two meals. So there was a cadence, like I said, and a purpose. And the priests were provided for out of the offerings. So there were two types of grain offerings that were outlined. The offering made by the people of which the priests get a portion, then the offering made by the priests for themselves of which they couldn't eat because they're offering for themselves. All right, moving on to the sin or purification offering. Now, remember the goal of this one is forgiveness for sin and purification from sin. It did atone for sin, and the offer is showing that they're sorry and they're receiving forgiveness. Verse 24, the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron and his sons, these are the regulations for the sin offering. The sin offering is to be slaughtered before the Lord in the place the burnt offering is slaughtered. It is most holy. The priest who offers it shall eat it. It is to be eaten in the sanctuary area in the courtyard of the tent of meeting. Whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. And if any of the blood is spattered on a garment, you must wash it in the sanctuary area. The clay pot the meat is cooked in must be broken. But if it is cooked on a bronze pot, the pot is to be scoured and rinsed with water. Any male in a priest's family may eat it. It is most holy. But any sin offering whose blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place must not be eaten. It must be burned up. All right. In Hebrews 13, Paul referred back to these, the burnt and the purification offerings. It says the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Both the animals of the Old Testament and Jesus of the New Testament provide atonement for the people. In both sacrifices, sin is transferred from us to them. Since then, we no longer have to sacrifice animals because we're living in the New Testament. Our sacrifice then is to offer praise to God and to do good for others, which brings us right back to the premise of Leviticus that is simplified in the first and second commandment of the New Testament. Love God and love your neighbor. We are traveling in the circles of God's word woven together throughout the entire Bible, even here in Leviticus. Okay, chapter seven, moving on to the guilt or reparation offering. Remember, the goal was forgiveness for and compensation for a sin that requires financial payment and that we must be reconciled with one another before being reconciled with God. 
This uh, offering also atones for sin, and the offer is showing that they are sorry and receiving forgiveness. Chapter 7, these are the regulations for the guilt offering, which is most holy. The guilt offering is to be slaughtered in the place where the burnt offering is slaughtered, and its blood is to be splashed against the sides of the altar. All its fat shall be offered. The fat tail and the fat that covers the internal organs, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins, on the long lobe of the liver, which is to be removed with the kidneys. The priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. It is a guilt offering. Any male in a priest's family may eat it, but it must be eaten in the sanctuary. It is most holy. The same law applies to both the sin offering and the guilt offering. They belong to the priest who makes atonement with them. The priest who offers a burnt offering for anyone may keep its hide for himself. Every grain offering baked in an oven or cooked in a pan or a griddle belongs to the priest who offers it. And every grain offering, whether mixed with olive oil or dry, belongs equally to all the sons of Aaron. The fellowship offering, our last one, remember that the goal of this offering is it is given to God and for the offerer to celebrate communion or relationship with God. The offer is saying thank you in the fellowship offering. Verse 11, these are the regulations for the fellowship offering anyone may present to the Lord. If they offer it as an expression of thankfulness, then along with the thank offering, they are to offer thick loaves made without yeast and with olive oil mixed in, thin loaves made without yeast and brushed with oil and thick loaves of the finest flour, well kneaded and with oil mixed in. Along with their fellowship offering of thanksgiving, they are to present an offering with thick loaves of bread made with yeast. They are to bring one of each kind of as an offering, a contribution to the Lord. It belongs to the priest who splashes the blood of the fellowship offering against the altar. The meat of their fellowship offering of thanksgiving must be eaten on the day it is offered. They must leave none of it till morning. If, however, their offering is the result of a vow or is a freewill offering, the sacrifice shall be eaten on the day they offer it, but anything left over may be eaten the next day. Any meat of the sacrifice left over till the third day must be burned up. If any of the meat of the fellowship offering is eaten on the third day, the one who offered it will not be accepted. It will not be reckoned to their credit, for it has become impure. The person who eats any of it will be held responsible. Meat that touches anything ceremonially unclean must not be eaten. It must be burned up. As for other meat, anyone ceremonially clean may eat it. But if anyone who is unclean eats any meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord, they must be cut off from their people. Anyone who touches something unclean, whether human uncleanliness or an unclean animal or any unclean creature that moves along the ground and then eats any of the meat of the fellowship offering belonging to the Lord must be cut off from their people. Okay, then we have this one little aside about eating fat and blood and how it is forbidden. And again, some of these things we're going to get into a little bit more in future chapters. Verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, say to the Israelites, do not eat any of the fat of cattle, sheep, or goats. The fat of an animal found dead or torn by wild animals may be used for any other purpose, but you must not eat it. Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which food offering may be presented to the Lord must be cut off from their people. And wherever you live, 
you must not eat the blood of any bird or animal. Anyone who eats blood must be cut off from their people. This is not a new thing, the eating blood from animals. It was first commanded to Noah in Genesis 9. Now we're going to discuss the priest's share. Verse 28, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to the Lord. With their own hands, they are to present the food offering to the Lord. They are to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast belongs to Aaron and his sons. You are to give the right thigh of your fellowship offerings to the priest as a contribution. The son of Aaron who offers the blood and the fat of the fellowship offering shall have the right thigh as his share. From the fellowship offerings of the Israelites, I have taken the breast that is waved and the thigh that is presented and have given them to Aaron the priest and his sons as their perpetual share from the Israelites. Okay, the last four sentences here are chiastic in structure. We've talked about what that is. It's a literary trick in other episodes, actually. A literary trick that we've discussed to give them emphasis. It means that the words are repeated, but in reverse order. So what Heather just read was, this is the portion of the food offerings presented to the Lord that were allotted to Aaron and his sons. On the day they were presented to serve the Lord as priests. On the day they were anointed. Now we're reversing. The Lord commanded that the Israelites give this to them as their perpetual share for the generations to come. The literary trick tells us that this command was super important. And although they were hearing this for the first time, on the day of the first ordination of priests, this allotment, which is coming in our next episode, this allotment of food was for all time, a regulation to provide for the priests forever. That's interesting that you brought that up because there's so much repetition in this. Mm -hmm. It could easily be missed. Yeah. All right. Continuing on in verse 37. These then are the regulations for the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, the ordination offering, and the fellowship offering, which the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai in the desert of Sinai on the day he commanded the Israelites to bring their offerings to the Lord. Note there was a little one out of there, the ordination offering, which he actually didn't give the rules for, which are going to be given in the next episode episode. Now, congratulations, all of you listeners. You have finished your first semester of Leviticus Law School. This well is done. what the world missed in Leviticus. <laughs> exactly. And now no, you know it's coming. No, it's coming. There's more the world missed. This first section of the book of Leviticus covered the ritual sacrifice for the people and for the priests. And why did they have to sacrifice? Because God is holy and he was taking up residence in the tabernacle, which meant it had to be holy too. And if Israel wants to live with God in their presence, they had to become holy too, which means their sin had to be dealt with. There was a reason for the ritual and rules of Leviticus. Well, that's good to know. Now, reading Leviticus is not for the faint of faith. When you think of all the big moments in the Bible that led to Christ, what we are discussing in Leviticus was a conceptually difficult one. But what happened had an important purpose. Think about the big moments so far in our Bible Book Club journey. The first was creation in the fall. Then we had the flood recreation of the world and the covenant with Noah. Then the calling of Abraham and the covenant of circumcision. Then we move from Genesis to Exodus and we had the Exodus and the rise of the promised nation Israel. That would be our fourth one. We are there still with them, still at Mount Sinai. Israel as a nation is in prep stage. 
They are in the process of receiving the first set of written instructions, the covenant laws and the covenant rituals, which you just graduated from. They are preparing for launch as a great nation, over 2 million strong. And that was promised to Abraham way back in Genesis. This is a really big moment in the history of God's plan right here in Leviticus, a book that very few people read. Well, very few people today read. Right. But I don't remember. Back then. I think it was Buck, our editor, who taught yes. me this. This would have been one of the first books that the Israelites would read. And that but they today, would teach their children. This is one of the last ones yeah. that we read, and we really should understand what it says. So and you do now. What did the world miss in Leviticus? The more you study this Bible, the more you realize its design is beyond the scope of the human brain. The Bible is divine. And this book, Leviticus, for whatever reason, and unbeknownst to me until recently, is riddled with symbolism, patterns, and literary devices that have been dissected, hypothesized, debated, and interpreted in commentaries that are even accepted by both Christian and Jewish scholars, but largely missed by us, the lay people, we are missing it. It just isn't breaking news when an anthropologist or archaeologist makes new discoveries about the Bible. Well, Mary Douglas is one of those anthropologists who has made new discoveries, and she is praised by both Jews and Christians for seeing things in the Bible that the world missed. Mary was a British anthropologist known for her writings on human culture and symbolism who had a strong interest in religion. She didn't always just do anthropology and religion. She began studying cultures in Africa. She taught in the U.S. at Northwestern and Princeton and in the U.K. at the University College of London. She has received a bajillion awards I'm not going to go into. Mary has become, since my recent studying of Leviticus, on my top list of people to seek out in heaven. And I expect her lectures up there will be packed out. Look for me in the front row. I am reading this woman avidly, and I'm only sad that I didn't read one of her books called Jacob's Tears when we were doing Genesis, because she has written multiple books about the Bible. She wrote over 20 books before she died in 2006 at the age of 87. Several of those books focus on the Torah, but two in particularly pertain to Leviticus. Her book, Leviticus as Literature, which was one of her last books, is worth a deep dive today because Mary saw something in Leviticus that no one saw before her. And the rabbis and pastors agree she was spot on in what she discovered. So let's talk about the tripart divisions of the mountain, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial animal. Leviticus is a bit of a mystery for many, including the theologians and those in the sciences. It is not easy to understand the meaning of words written to a culture from 3,000 years ago. That is where anthropology, which is the science of cultural development, comes in. Some of the cultural practices of Leviticus can be found in many other cultures in and around the same time period. 
However, the practices of the Israelites were different, and it is those differences that bring insight into what God intended for Israel, a nation that was holy, separate, and in covenant relationship with Him. This is what intrigued Mary Douglas, who had studied many cultures from that era, but couldn't understand why Israel was doing it so different, and it bugged her to the point of she began to really dig in. To remind the Israelites of the need to be holy so that they could stay in relationship with God, much of their culture involved symbolism for God, creation, and holiness. Now, one picture of symbolism that started on Mount Sinai was then applied to the creation of the tabernacle. We've discussed this one. Both are holy places where God could be in relationship with the people. There was a three-way division on the mountain that was duplicated in the tabernacle. The mountain summit corresponds to the inner sanctum of the tabernacle called the most holy place, and only Moses could go to the summit, where only the high priest could enter the most holy place in the tabernacle. Then the middle zone in the mountain corresponded to the outer sanctum or holy place in the tabernacle. Only Moses, Aaron, Aaron's sons, Joshua, and the 70 elders had access on the middle mountain, and only the priests could enter the holy place in the tabernacle. The perimeter of the cloud, remember the cloud descended on the mountain, separated the middle of the mountain from the summit. And the cloud of incense in the tabernacle separated the holy from the most holy. They mirror perfectly. The lower zone in the mountain corresponded to the outer court of the tabernacle, and it was open access where so, everyone so, was So allowed. you're saying they basically recreated the mountain in the tabernacle. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Now, Mary Douglas, like I said, was intrigued by the ritual sacrifices and how detailed they were and just, you know, why go into that detail? And, and yet the detail was very different from other cultures. So Mary Douglas' study of God's design for ritual sacrifice added another layer of comparison to the three-way division seen on the mountain and in the tabernacle. She discovered that God had created this three-part division in the animal that mimicked the tabernacle and the mountain. And it explains why the Israelite sacrifices were so different, because they follow a repeated pattern designed by God, a recreation pattern. Now, Mary Douglas realized the unusual process for sacrificing the animals had this three-part division that fits with the divisions of the mountain and the tabernacle, and no one else had ever seen this before. All right, so first of all, what she discovered is the mountain, the tabernacle, and the animal are all consecrated or set apart as holy in the Word of God in Exodus 19.23, Leviticus 1-7, through and Leviticus 16. It says they were consecrated. The tabernacle was consecrated. The mountain was consecrated. The animal was consecrated. So already we have this basic comparison. Moving forward, the head, because this is reverse, so hang with me. The head and meat of the animal, which is laid on the altar first and is also available as food for people and priests, depending on which offering you're talking about, corresponds to the outer court and the base of the mountain that everybody had access to. The midriff area of the animal with the kidneys and the liver lobe, which was covered in this dense fat or suet, which gets mentioned a lot, the suet, the suet, we're going to talk about it even more going forward, corresponds to the holy place 
in the tabernacle and the middle zone of the mountain. Now, the fat or suet, okay, so fat or suet was this kind of fat. It was like really thick. And the only people who really used it a lot were the British people. They used it in meat pies. But it, it's great because it has a high um, burning point when you cook. So it's in like meat pies and stuff. And it covers the the intestines and all those things in, in the midriff. Not the intestines, the, in the midriff, the, the like middle stuff. So your rib cage covers your heart up here, but the suet is in the middle. Am I getting it across? It's kind of gross, but the fat or suet corresponds to the incense in the tabernacle and the cloud separating the holy place from the most holy place. This explains why the suet, which represents the cloud, is strictly forbidden to eat. You just read that, Heather, like, do not eat the fat, do not eat the fat, do not eat the fat. And I wondered why. Exactly. (laughs) Now I'm explaining it. Now, the animal's entrails, intestines, and genital organs at the top of the pile of the offering correspond to the most holy place in the tabernacle and the summit of the mountain. There is, of course, much discussion about why the head of the animal is at the bottom, or least important, and the intestines and genitals are at the top or most important part of the offering. Here is Mary's explanation why. And this is why, again, nobody really saw this before, because to us, it seems a little backwards. Why would the bottom of the animal be considered the most important part when the head was considered the least important part? Here's Mary's example. This is what she says. I wish I could say it in a British accent. Don't look at me for that. Exactly. She says, bashfulness apart, it is important to ask why the innards should be at the point of highest esteem, the position that corresponds to the holy of holies, instead of the face or head or heart, to which we accord more honor. Recall that there has always been in the Jewish culture a strong association between body and tabernacle in respect of fertility. The temple was associated with the creation and the creation with fruitfulness and fertility, which implies that the innermost part of the tabernacle was a divine matrimonial chamber. It was fitting that the sanctuary was interpreted as depicting in a most tangible form the union between God and Israel. It was where God's presence met with the people of Israel. That the tabernacle was associated with creation and connected with abounding fruitfulness should be carried forward for interpreting the rest of Leviticus. Now, if you weren't with us in the beginning of Exodus, when we started talking about the tabernacle, remember the Ark of the Covenant and the lamp and everything was made with flowers and almonds and carved and beautiful because it was supposed to represent paradise, that paradise that was lost. And remember, the promise to all of them is that they're going to be a great nation. And from this great nation is going to come a savior, the seed. So the fact that they're remembering this seed comes and then remember the circumcision. Remember the covenant uh, way back in with Abraham was a covenant of circumcision. Again, separating them in a very private genital place from all other countries. There is a focus here. Now, listen to these thoughts I want you to ponder about. Fast forward, there is a similar comparison to Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. So you have this symbolism here 
of this this special space where the temple was associated with creation, fruitfulness, and fertility. Additionally, it occurred to me, the prophecy to the serpent in Genesis was that about the seed that would bring an end to sin and the beginning of another recreation, a new heaven and earth. The seed was going to be Jesus. Uh, And he said in Genesis, I will put enmity between your offspring or seed and hers, the woman. He, the offspring, will crush your head, meaning the serpents, and you will strike his heel. The offspring or seed was promised to come from Abraham, now through Israel. So it makes sense that the genitals would be valued above all. The animal, the tabernacle, and the mountain were all reminders of God's holiness and his provision of a separation solution so that we can be in relationship with him. So you're kind of saying it has a lot to do with fertility and the seed or what would eventually become Jesus. That they were going to become a great nation, that they were going to be fruitful and multiply. All of these would have been important symbols to them. And they knew that implicitly. It wasn't like something that they knew. we just miss it because it's not part of our culture. Abraham's promise was taught to them over and over. This is why they're prepping to leave Egypt. They prepped to leave Egypt. They were brought out and they're prepping to leave to go to Canaan because God promised to Abraham Abraham in the covenant of the circumcision, you will be fruitful, go multiply, you will become a great nation. And so this is foremost in their mind, way above their hard head or their heart. It's all about this is what is God has called us to, to do to become a great nation. We've got to multiply. We become have to become as numerous as stars, greater than the sands, uh, greater than the sand. You know, it, it's all they thought about. It's it's it was the central to how are we going to get there and become this great nation? And they're two million strong. They're going for it. It's a crazy, crazy thought, isn't it? Yeah, it's really cool. It's a lot, but it's, it's a, a lot. Big Bible it bender. Takes us in. <laughs> Totally different direction than we would ever think for those sacrifices, but it made sense to them. And aren't you glad you're studying Leviticus with us? What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to SusanMe.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio. Edited by Buck Buchanan. Produced by Haley Mawatt.